what's going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, of course, joined by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who also covers the team for the Athletic Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game. Now found together online at DLEAMC.com. Coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Lots to get into today. Ryan Clark from ESPN is going to join us a little bit later to chat about the Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, a little bit of Canucks news around Jonathan Lakaramaki, but of course it was Game 7 last night, and we now know the final member of the NHL's Final Four. Dallas advances to the Western Conference Final after uh, what I thought was a pretty dominant 2-1 win in Game 7 over the Kraken Drancer. Fully dominant. They were fantastic. That was pretty close to a perfect game. Yeah. I mean, Bjorkstrand sort of ruined it, but it was very much like a perfect game through 26 outs <laughs> and then there's you know a double yeah puts puts them in scoring position for the last batter but very little suspense in terms of the flow of play it was a fabulous game you know it felt breathless uh like sudden death the feel of sudden death anyway set in around the third like with 35 minutes left to play in regulation it was fast it was contested hard, but the Dallas Stars defended so well. Mm -hmm. It just felt like they got two and a half quality chances to every one that the Kraken generated. And, you know, at some point, the better team won. Like, the Stars deserved to advance here. And I think they're going to give Vegas all they can handle. Like, that to me is going to be... A big boy series. I'm really oh excited. Yeah, because I thought, um, as you said, they defended really well last night. They forced Philip Grubauer to make some fantastic saves, especially in that second second period, leading up to Hints uh, opening the scoring. And then I did think, you know, you're right that there was a lot of suspense building into it. But then I thought once Hints scored, and there wasn't like it didn't change the flow of the game. You know, Seattle didn't get back into mm. it and really start pushing back. I kind of thought, okay, I can see where this one is going. If if Dallas is just going to keep uh, on the front foot even after taking the lead, and then that's exactly what ended up happening. But I thought the other thing was just the forecheck from Dallas and their ability to put Seattle's defensemen under a ton of pressure. Like a lot of those great A chances came off of either sloppy plays trying to exit the zone or turnovers in the neutral zone, right? Like Hint scores after forcing Alexiak to turn the puck over, but Tyler Sagan had a pretty similar chance not that long before it that was stopped by Grubauer. And then there was a lot of just turnovers below the goal line uh, that that found their way to the slot and forced Grubauer to make a, a, a really impressive save. Well, and that's where Dallas, I think, is going to pose real problems for Vegas is they've just got a few additional burners. You know, like, I yeah. think they're a faster team. And yet, that's obviously not true for some of their key players. I mean, Robertson, Pavelski mm -hmm. aren't exactly Rope hints, goes burr type skaters. But there's definitely a speed element that the stars bring that gave Seattle an awful lot of trouble, especially because that's not a problem or not a problem typically 
for that Kraken team, right? Like breaking the puck out clean has pretty much been a key part of them advancing to the point that they did. Yeah. Um, hey, can we? I want to talk about this really quick. Let's go. Because because Pete DeBoer, despite feeling like this retread, like the ultimate retread, also just keeps going to the conference finals. <laughs> well, he is your favorite hockey coach's favorite hockey mm. coach. You know, and and that's been true for a long time. DeBoer's the ultimate structure and details and matchup discipline coach. I mean, even to the point where in the first period of that game, all of Hints, Pavelski, and Robertson were well shy of four minutes played at five on five. And and it was because Hackstall anticipating how DeBoer would focus on um, trying to keep them away from Yan Gord just kind of like didn't play Yan Gord that much. <laughs> like he kind of baited him and it worked because DeBoer is one of those, you know, super disciplined matchup guys. Mm -hmm. And he was at home in game seven and he was going to stick to his game plan. And 20 minutes into the game, I was wondering, are we in one of those games where the more disciplined coach kind of gets jumped by uh, by a coach who's a little bit wise to it. Um, obviously, DeBoer played the wheels off those guys and it wasn't a thing. But DeBoer is wired that way. And you look through the coaches remaining. Uh, DeBoer, you know, he's worn out his welcome almost everywhere he's gone mm -hmm. eventually. Mm -hmm. But his tactical acumen is the best in the league. Uh, Bruce Cassidy was literally getting buried by his Boston Bruins players when he left, right? I mean, he'd held them accountable. There were players who rescinded trade requests. Oh, yeah. no, It, um, it was like Daryl Sutter, right? It was like guys are not coming back, potentially, if Bruce Cassidy is still around. It was the same dynamic when he left Boston. He wore out his welcome in a major way, and look where he is with the team in the conference final. Paul Maurice is like almost the first iteration of this type of coach, right? Like when he was 24 or whatever, coaching uh, the Carolina Hurricanes and mm -hmm. the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, like he was young, precocious, and and sort of the first uh, of this breed of hyper-disciplined X's and O's matchup attentive head coaches. And then you've got Rod Brindamore, who's sort of kind of the next Pete DeBoer, right? Like in some ways, except a little bit more cemented in a, in a North Carolina market that like he's never going to leave. So long as they'll have him, he's going to be there. Yeah. And so from a you value structure, this was a good playoffs for you. Like this was not a good playoffs for your Gerard Gallant, Jim Montgomery style players coaches. This was the playoffs for the disciplined guys figuring out you know, specific forechecking schemes and mm -hmm. being super attentive to matchups and on and on. And I'm curious to see if that shapes to what we see as the coaching carousel spins over the next few weeks. Well, it's an interesting point, too, about the coaching and specifically, you know, everyone's favorite buzzword here in Vancouver, uh, the structure element, right? And, you know, yesterday we talked a little bit about 
some of the off-ice lessons and just the mentality and the process that these teams um, built themselves with, right, uh, and uh, the aggression and the willingness to be bold. But I, I did want to talk about some of the on-ice trends and lessons we can take away from these teams as well. And th- I think there's a few uh, that can, obviously relate to the Canucks, but I did want to start can with – Can we not do the what? $10 million cap hit thing? Well – Okay. I mean, do we want to talk about it quickly? Because I have, there's, there's two kind of variations of this, right? There's the cap number. And then there's also the, there's no star players, which I find really bizarre because like, okay, it's not the kind of consensus top five of McKinnon, McDavid, Dreisaitl, Matthews, McCarr. Like, okay. Yeah. Those guys got eliminated, but like right on the outside of that list, you could easily put Matthew Kachuk. Barkov, Aho, Heiskanen. You know what I mean? Like, Like, you, you listed five guys from three teams, though. Yeah, no, I know. But, like, there's this idea that, like, oh, see, you don't win with those types of guys. But, like, okay, it's not the top five, but how many of the five through 20 best players in the NHL are still playing? Like, a lot. Heiskanen, Eichel, Stone, Aho, Barkov, Robertson. Like, these are elite, hyper-elite players. And let's not sleep on Hints. Oh, man. You know, like, oh, Hints man. is absolutely putting himself in a spot where when we talk about the top five centers, you know, that Aho barkov Pedersen class, mm-hmm. like, I think it probably needs to include hints at this point, based not just on what he's done this playoff, although it's been scintillating, but what he's done for the past few years. I mean, he might be the most underrated pivot in the sport. He's also... And he shouldn't be anymore. He's also right up there in terms of just, like, my fun-to-watch rankings. He oh, is he's very, very near the top of the list. Just an incredible player. He's got some of that Nathan McKinnon skates angry in him. Yes, for you sure. know it's it's a ton of fun. No one skates angrier than Nathan McKinnon, though. No, nobody okay. skates angrier than Nathan McKinnon. I want to frame this discussion because people are like, "Have you noticed how now it's ten million point oh one? Because there's a bunch of guys with ten million dollars. Because Eichel cap makes ten million, yeah." And so does Barkov and Bobrovsky. That's a good point. So, yeah, Bobrovsky. So there's, yeah. there's two guys on one team. Like, Barkov and Bobrovsky combined make one million less than McDavid and Dreisaitl combined. Mm. You know, they make, what, 1.9 million less than Matthews and Marner combined. Like, it's a two, $2 million difference, basically. And they have Kachuk well, at 9.5 as well, right? Well, and who would you rather have? Dreisaitl and McDavid at 21 or Bobrovsky and Barkov at 20? You don't even have to think about it. Yeah. Same with the Leafs duo. Not a hard decision. Like, stop it. You can't You can't make the playoffs with guys making a ton. The Stars have a couple middle six guys <laughs> making 19 and a half combined. Like, they've managed to build around that, which is wild, by the way, because, you know, Sagan and Ben are a bit – they're supporting players. Mm-hmm. On this team. They're depth. Um, they're depth guys. And they have three guys making 8.45 or more, right? The Golden Knights have three guys making 8.8 or more. The Florida Panthers have three guys making 9.5 or more. You know, like the the shades of difference between Florida and Toronto, it's 3.5 million difference, something like that, if you're looking at the top three guys. I mean, it's not immaterial. But it's not the difference in that series. No. By any means. And I think you could very credibly argue, even if you look at it as the core four and throw an Ekblad into the Florida mix, 
and Nylander into Toronto's, like Toronto's spending is actually more efficient at the top end of their roster than Florida's or Dallas's, arguably than Vegas's too. If you throw in, oh, they don't really have another high salary guy. They have a couple six million dollar guys. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Pietrangelo at eight point eight, Bobrovsky at ten. I mean, those uh, Sagan and Ben at nine five and nine eight. Like across the board, those guys are all less efficient than Tavares at, at eleven. Like by a lot, despite what you might have heard on the People's Show yesterday. My goodness. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. If your argument is more teams should build themselves out like the Carolina Hurricanes, I'm here for that argument, right? That team, in terms of their cap management, in terms of the perfect marriage between one of the NHL's best, most old school head coaches and one of the smartest, savviest nerds (laughs) off the ice, like it's a perfect marriage. If you're telling me teams should go about replicating that, I'm here for it. If you're trying to say that like Edmonton and Toronto's team building philosophy and overall salary cap allocation is out of step with what Vegas, Florida, and uh, Dallas have done, I think you're out to lunch. That like that doesn't pass muster. It's factually untrue. Those are top heavy teams as well. And the gap in the success they've had and the like fine line between, you know, Edmonton not being there and Vegas being there or Florida being there and Toronto not being there. I mean, it's not explained by salary cap structure or the AAVs of some of the top players on, on either teams. It's explained by other stuff. Um, bounces playoff performance, execution, coaching, goaltending. I mean, all of those things are are what de- are decisive in shaping the difference between those teams. It's not the AAV of their top players. Like, how can you tell me that it's the AAV of their top players when Dreisaitl makes eight and a half and, you know, Jack yeah. Eichel makes 10? Like, you're telling me, you're telling me Vegas won because they're more efficient than Edmonton? Edmonton has the most efficient contract in the universe – on their books, the only consistent 50-goal, 100-point guy on the planet for 8.5, less than 10, that magic number. And you're telling me Edmonton's not here because of contract inefficiency? Ludicrous. Just a preposterous I do think, statement. Because I do think it's fair to look at these teams and have the takeaway of the importance of depth. But I think then sure. some people are making the extra leap to... And that's the only thing that matters. And though they don't actually have elite talent and they're not paying their guys a lot when they are, they very much do have elite talent. Now, having said that, like if you, if you want to talk about what's the difference between Vegas and Edmonton, like I think depth is a huge part of it, right? I even think like, I thought Toronto's depth ended up being pretty underwhelming uh, in that series. So I think it's totally fair to look at the teams that are remaining. Like, look, just some of the players that are playing on the third line for these teams, like Jamie Benn. Marty Natchez, Sam Reinhart, William Carlson, like Jordan Stahl, mm-hmm. who's like one of the best defensive centers in the league so far. You know, those are guys that are like either recent 75 plus point scorers or like dangerous offensive players, great two-way players. Like those are really, really good players that these teams have on their third lines. So I think it's completely fair to look at it and say, okay, you need to have that depth in the playoffs. The challenge is, and you alluded to this, is 
like if you if you want to talk about what has Edmonton not done as well as Vegas or Dallas, it's figured out a way to add that high quality depth around your stars that you're paying what you have to pay to keep them. Like that's the difference to me. It's not that oh you have to spend less on your stars in order to add that depth. It's you got to be creative and maybe a little bit lucky to add that depth around your stars. Well, and these teams have gone about adding depth to their roster in a variety of different ways. So with Dallas, it's all been about the draft table, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, what's the difference between Edmonton and Dallas? It's, you know, Wyatt Johnston scores the game winner. Uh Whereas Dylan Holloway and Xavier Borgo and, you know, Philip Broberg and a bunch of Edmonton's recent first overall or first round picks are nowhere to be seen. Even Thomas Harley, like not that he's a key player, but like he's given them minutes and he's he's been decent for them in the playoffs, right? Like recent first round Absolutely. picks for them as well. Well, who would you rather have based on what you've seen in the playoffs, Harley or Brober? It's no question, it's Harley. Uh, like no, no question. question. Yeah. So that to me is is like Dallas has drafted their way around a wild collection of contractual errors and strategic blunders. And credit to them. You know, for me, they're a perfect template, like something to keep in mind about how retooling can work, mm. but it's not good strategy. You know, like the Dallas Stars have succeeded in spite of themselves, in part because they've just absolutely ruined the draft in a positive way and capitalized in a major way off the picks that they've made in a way that Edmonton surely hasn't. Um, and in a way that Toronto hasn't really either, you know, I, I mean, what's the big difference between Toronto and Carolina? Like, I'd posit to you, you know, Toronto takes Rodian and Amarov, mm-hmm. right? And tragic that he's been unable to contribute. But one pick before the Carolina Hurricanes get Seth Jarvis. I mean, what a huge swing in terms of and sorry. The next pick, the Panthers get Anton Lindell. I mean, there you go. Like, how big a difference? How big a swing is it to have those guys on ELCs where Toronto was unable to get a contributor of that quality onto their roster given their cap concerns? Like, to me, it's the talent acquisition at the low end. It's the impact of the cheap labor that these teams are able to find largely through the draft that's far more decisive than, you know, the saving a couple million in terms of paying your star players. And here's the last thing that I hate about the don't pay anyone more than the 10 million AAV thing. It's like so ownership friendly. Yes. It's like yes. it feels like an argument that a owner would have, you know, like the NHL's loving that. Like, yeah, you can't pay your star players fair value and win. You can't. Yeah, in fact, you can pay your star play- players fair value, have them fall off a cliff like they did in Dallas, and if you're smart enough, you can still build around them. Like, Tavares at 11, Marner at 11, Matthews like at the 11, they don't kill you. That doesn't kill you, fundamentally. Like, Ekman Larson at 7-2-6, Myers at 6, those are the things that kill you. Um, the non-contributors who are also paid a ton. Um, you know, you can draft your way around an all 
like all manner of problems. And I think that's a huge lesson from the Dallas Stars, but also from the composition of the Final Four generally. Yeah, and Greg, the dairy farmer, texts in, to me, the difference maker is having great upcoming talent on ELC contracts. And as you said, like Wyatt Johnson, a great example of that. Obviously, Seth Jarvis, Anton Lundell. And I would also point out, those are all recent in the teens picks, right? Like the idea that, you know, Wyatt mm-hmm. Johnson's what, a 2021 pick. Um, the idea that, and, and now he's playing key minutes down the middle for the Dallas Stars. And, you know, they could have looked at it and said, oh, what? We, we got to trade this pick to help Miro Heiskanen out right now. We've got this star young player. They didn't. They made the pick. They made a really, really good pick. And now they're reaping the rewards in a major way, in a more significant way than whatever they traded that pick probably would have helped them. So, yes, obviously there's a ton of uncertainty because, as you said, you could end up in a Leafs situation where you have a similar pick, you know, around – uh, what Florida and Carolina, where they selected their guys. But it's it, there's this idea that if you are even trying to be good or make the playoffs, that picks outside of the top five don't matter, right? They're so, oh, they're so far down the road from actually contributing. But that's not necessarily true. You If you draft really well, you can get a Wyatt Johnson. You can get a Seth Jarvis, who two or three years down the road can be a really important player for you. Well, absolutely. Well, and Johnston has the additional context of coming from that really strange 2021 draft and and out of the Ontario Hockey League where they'd canceled their hockey season right and he played like seven games that whole year his draft his draft year he didn't play any him playing seven games I don't think he played no no seven games on the fourth line at the U18s oh okay okay yeah so you know, very limited viewings in his draft year. And he wasn't one of the guys like uh, Brennan Othman, right? The New York Rangers prospect who went over and played in Switzerland or, or what have you. I remember talking at length and, and it's funny because I was talking about Seth Jarvis who went a year earlier and Seth Jarvis was this guy who in his draft year anyway, um, sort of came out of nowhere to become a top half of the first round consideration in part because his last 60 games of the WHL season, he became the best CHL player in hockey at, at kind of out of nowhere. Like he was a point per game kind of ham and egger. Mm-hmm. And then he just exploded with Portland dominated in the playoffs and, and completely changed the pl- complexion of who he was. And I was obsessed in the lead up to that 2021 NHL draft with this idea that, this year's Seth Jarvis hasn't had a chance to be Seth Jarvis and some team is going to find a guy or two way late or late in the first or what have you who's a star level player who puts them over the top because of how unpredictable this whole draft class is. Wyatt Johnston wasn't one of the guys on my radar to watch. Actually, one of them, Connor Larkhart, was a guy that the Canucks ended up selecting in the sixth round. Mm-hmm. Ethan Del Mastro was another and he's trended well for the Blackhawks. But Johnston's the guy. Like this is this is it. This is the theory, the Seth Jarvis theory that I talked about at length for months, two years ago, in practice. And the moment he scored, I thought, oh boy, 
I wish I'd I wish I'd been smart enough to actually pick the right one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has been really impressive, and that was a fantastic goal last night. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit more about some of the on ice takeaways and the forecheck and the structure specifically of some of these teams that are still playing. As mentioned, a little bit of news around Canucks prospect uh, Jonathan Lacaramaki as well. So we'll get into that. Plus, Ryan Clark of ESPN joins us at one o'clock. Lots more to come here. Canucks talk Sportsnet six fifty. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Live from the Kintec Studio, 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver. Online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, before we get back into the normal flow of things, Drancer, this happened while, while you were off last week. Uh, Keith Jones hired as the president of hockey operations for the Philadelphia Flyers, which, you know, a lot of people thought was an interesting hire. Let's put it that way. Um, Of course, he's a TNT analyst, and I see today that he's just going to keep working. He's doing the Eastern Conference Finals as the color guy on TNT, despite now being employed as the Philadelphia Flyers' top hockey executive and president of hockey operations, which... Strikes me as one of the weirdest NHL-related things I can... Like, that is truly, truly bizarre to me. Am I wrong? That's weird, right? I think it speaks volumes about the nature... Of what of, he's going to be doing? Of the separation of powers yeah. between him and Danny Briere. You know, the Keith Jones hire definitely struck me as strange, given, you know, the way that I think an organizational president should function you know increasingly like the real world is sort of at the gates of the mm -hmm. nhl and whether it's technological implementation um hr issues that are increasingly complex but also high stakes from a you better manage it the right way perspective um you know obviously i'm thinking about the blackhawks thing there right like yep You've got to have someone, in my opinion, in the room who, when the hockey people say, let's draft Logan Mayu or let's focus on winning the conference final in the wake of X thing that obviously needs to take precedence, you've got someone with the business acumen and like adult experience and who takes their duty of care in terms of a corporate leadership role seriously enough to be like, no, well, guys, come on. That's effectively what I think a president of hockey operations increasingly needs to do. Direct resources and grapple with the real world issues that hockey teams deal with while you've got a GM who handles the administrative complexity of building a hockey team in a hard cap environment, um, you know, with all of the struggles that come with that. So, you know, Keith Jones, to me, when I saw the hire, felt like uniquely underqualified mm. for for the position, given what I think it demands in a contemporary hockey business environment. And as I learned more about what to expect from a new look Philadelphia Flyers front office, you know, I really think they're looking for a president who's like really a media facing yeah. 
person. Almost uh, think Don Waddell. Well, while while Danny Briere is effectively in charge of hockey operations, and I still expect Philadelphia to hire another senior executive to join that team. Now, not um, like I don't know if it'll be an AGM or a C level sort of thing, but someone with a hockey profile and a lot of industry expectation wonders if that person might um, be, uh, you know, a woman or someone with a little bit of a different background, a different identity Mm -hmm. in terms of them fleshing out their hockey operations staff. And obviously the Canucks uh, with their assistant general managers, Emily Castongay and uh, Cammie Granato have both been linked in the rumor mill. This isn't me reporting anything to that job. So, I wouldn't be surprised if there's another shoe to drop in that front office, but this Keith Jones staying on and doing broadcasts thing suits or fits anyway with what I'm hearing about the nature of his position. I think speaks volumes about what to expect from that, what they're calling triumvirate of Briere, Jones, and Tortorella. Because if he's not deferring in almost in, it's in the entirety to Briere. It's like, come on, man. The draft is like six weeks away. Like, what are you doing? Free agency is six weeks away. You're the top executive. Why are you calling these games? But as you said, it sounds like he is going to be extremely media focused. And, you know, I'd imagine like a lot of, uh, a lot of dinners and banquets and golf tournaments and meetings with sponsors are in, uh, are in Keith Jones's future in that and role. Press well. conferences. Yeah. And press conferences. And, you know, intermission panels and on and on. Yeah. I think that's, a little bit more the nature of his role. So this this fits with what I've been hearing as I as I began asking people in the industry like what happened? <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I will say like I can understand that logic, but now you're saying okay, it's going to be a triumvirate, right? With uh with John Tortorella and he's going to have a lot of say uh, on personnel moves as well. Like it's fine to hire Keith Jones and say, "Okay, but yeah, but Briere's going to make all the hockey decisions." But Keith Jones is still like a hockey guy who's been around all, you know, been around the game with for opinions. a long time with opinions. And like, is he real? Like, if Danny Breer is like, we're going to sign this player that Keith Jones hates, I think eventually the 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 rubber's going to hit the road there. You know what I mean? And there's going to have to be some some awkward conversations. I don't know if that's a long term tenable arrangement to have your president just be like, oh yeah, no, I I don't care. You you just do whatever you want with player personnel. I don't know if that's going to last. Well, I'm curious to see because Briere's been 0% shy about using the word rebuild. Mm-hmm. The Philadelphia Flyers books are some of the ugliest in the league. There is, especially if you're a win-now team or a team that thinks they should be a win-now team, like a certain local team that we talk about all the time, mm-hmm. the Vancouver Canucks, that's a team you should be calling constantly. I mean, you know, especially if you're willing to part with, say, the 11th overall pick or Niels Hoaglander or, you know, one of those moves that if it happens while we're live on air, there'll be a gif of my reaction. (laughs) But if that's something the Canucks are willing to explore in a deal that, like, offloads money and while bringing back a defenseman or a, you know, center type, uh, a guy like a Scott Lawton, I mean, it's not hard to put together something that at least seems reasonable, right? That's at least seems realistic uh, between, you know, those two teams, depending on, of course, on how Philly decides to 
chart their course here and how significantly they decide to hit detonate on a roster that's really, really bad. Like that roster should be blown up. And and unlike what we talked about the other day with Toronto being like easy to disassemble, the Flyers are the opposite of that. Yeah. That's right. Like one. it's gonna take years to even clear the decks and, and launch a proper rebuild. It's um if they do it right, it's like two, three years before that's a long one. And that's unfortunately similar to where the Canucks might trend uh, as a result of them, you know, being stubborn and continuing to charge headlong into the fray of trying to be a playoff team uh, with a roster that's performed the way this one has over the past few years. Uh, And speaking of the Canucks, before we get back into uh, some of the on-ice lessons from the Final Four teams and how they relate to the Canucks, I did want to mention the news about uh, Jonathan LeCaramacchi today, one of the team's top prospects. They're a first-round draft pick from last season, signing a two-year deal with, I believe it's Orebro in the SHL, the Swedish Nailed Hockey it. League. Yeah, yeah, I did it. Uh, in the first division of Swedish hockey, the highest level, uh, the SHL. So he joins Canucks prospect, uh, is it it's Elias Pettersson? I always get this one confused, but anyways. Elias. Elias. Oh, no, yeah, right, and PD is Elias. Yes, okay. Elias Pettersson, uh, Canucks defenseman prospect. So, uh, LeCaramacchi staying in Sweden on a two-year deal and... Look, gets to go to the SHL, that's awesome. Just in general, next year is so, so pivotal and big for him because we all know on ice, off the ice, how it's gone in the almost a year now since he's been drafted by the Canucks. Fortunately, he finished on a real positive note with a productive playoffs, now gets some certainty and some solidity, and the understanding and the reporting I've seen from Dollywall and others is that the Canucks played a significant role in choosing this location or helping to choose this location, so you got to hope that he's able to build on the momentum, any momentum he might have built uh, in the playoffs this year and have a big year with his new team next season. Uh, one thing that's interesting to me about Orebro, because there's a lot of Canucks connections there with Olias Patterson mm-hmm. and, and the head coach is Johan Hedberg, but there's also a winger who wears an A for Orebro named Matthias Brom. All right. And Matthias Brom stands out to me because he was the best player for the teams that Jeremy Colleton coached when he was over there in um you know I, I can't remember the exact years and i can't even remember the exact team i think it was mora ik when they got promoted from the alsvenskin uh but yeah so colton has some relationships clearly with some of the leadership on that roster too so i think you know in addition to having mikhail samuelson over there in addition to the relationship that patrick alvin has with johan hedberg um it sounds like the Canucks' main development coach will have a direct line, too, to some of the leadership group in that room, uh, which might help him in terms of designing, you know, an American League um, landing spot for Le Karamaki mm-hmm. whenever he does decide to come over and, and learn the game on the North American ice. Beyond that, I don't have a lot to say about it. Like, Le Karamaki's played in the SHL before yep. and played well. Uh, you know, it was the Alsvenskin where he struggled over the course of the season. Uh, you know, the Canucks need this guy to hit. I mean, we just talked about the importance of of having this churn of affordable labor. And, you know, 
it's something that the Canucks are desperate for. And, like they and, they need and how crucial uh, someone those, to be a difference maker. How crucial those like mid round first round picks can be, right? Like you don't totally you can't just rely on being in the top five. And that's last year's pick and Karamaki. That's even this year's pick, which is you know a high one, but it's still outside of the top ten. Like that's the difference between you know Dallas being where they are and being kind of you know a, a Nashville team on the bubble perennially or something like that right now so it's obviously Jason Robertson and and Jake Ottinger as well but you know it, if you can consistently hit on those picks as you said you just have uh that conveyor belt of talent coming through the system and LeCarrie Mackey is well, going to be a big part of that and you don't even need to hit consistently right I mean for every Ottinger and Wyatt Johnston you'll find in the Dallas Stars draft history you'll find a Delandria Right or a um, what was the college guy they drafted? The um, Riley Tufty. Okay, you know I mean you, that guy was the twenty fifth overall pick. You'll find a Gorianov. I mean, there's or Julius Honka. Like it's not that you have to nail every one. It's that when you nail them, they need to be difference makers. Like you need to get a couple difference makers who are drafted later than seventh. You know you need. More than Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. You need, whether it's a Hoaglander, a Pod Colson, a LaCaramaki, you know, and, and go down the list. But the Canucks need one or two guys. Maybe it's the guy they pick at 11th mm -hmm. to, in two years' time, when JT Miller is 33 and maybe has lost a step at five on five, you know, to offset the inefficiency of having eight million committed to a guy who you know could realistically be a middle six guy power play ace um you know before in like the front half of this contract not even the back half so that's sort of the stakes here and of course is part of the stakes too because we always are talking in loaded terms about the heronic trade whenever we have these conversations yeah uh and just uh, on Canucks prospects as well, by the way, shout out to Archer Seelovs with a uh, fantastic performance for Latvia at the World Champions uh, Championships yesterday, uh, including a couple of uh, real highlight viral saves uh, that he made in helping them beat Czechia at the World Championships. So sh shout out to Archer Seelovs for and so that so cool to get to do that in Riga. No, oh, amazing. I mean, absolutely incredible. Awesome. And what, a, like, uh, from a Canucks perspective, can you ask for a better post post-playing, like, post-year season with Abbotsford experience than to go over and play in front of your home fans for your national team and, like, against legit talent and make saves like that. It's incredible. Well, and it looks like he's taken the starter's net, right? Like, he started as the backup to open this tournament. He started too straight. He came in relief in the first one. Looks like they'll probably – he'll probably get some run here mm -hmm. over the balance of this tournament. He's had some success in international tournaments before, and yet – you know, highlight reel save, historic win for his country at home, great. His numbers aren't great in this tournament yet. You know, uh, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. It's it's a fabulous opportunity, and more than that, I'm sure he just had a great day yesterday. But um, let's see how the rest of the tournament unfolds before we're reading too much into it from the perspective of, like, you know, this guy should be their backup next yeah. season or what have yeah. you. No, I, I mean, I'm, just, I'm really, it's a, it's a positive experience for him. Like that's the totally. number one thing, right? I'm not, I'm not low on sea love so much as like, I know I'm going to be in the position of pouring cold water on his NHL readiness 
for next year, given how Vancouver's positioned in net. Right? I mean, there's a real world where this team's counting on this guy heavily mm. next season. And I just can't get over the risk assessment perspective there, which is that, you know, it's a big roll of the dice. Even if, you know, when you're rolling the dice, you'd, you'd rather be doing it on a super talented, athletic young player who's shown as well as Seelovs has, um, you know, at the international level, at the NHL level now too, and occasionally at the AHL level this past season for Abbotsford too. So when we, you know, to get back into the conversation about the kind of on-ice lessons that we can learn from the conference finalists this year, Dallas, Vegas, Florida, Carolina, as you said earlier in the show, talking about kind of the coaching impact, really good playoffs for structure forward coaches and not necessarily the loose, you know, uh, maybe less disciplined, less tactical minded coaches uh, of the Gerard Gallant type. And I look at it, and yeah, structure is a good word for it. The forechecking stands out to me. And to use another talk it kind of buzzword, like lots of north-south hockey being played in these playoffs, Drancer. And I would look at this, like I'm really, really excited for the Dallas-Vegas series. I think Florida-Carolina is going to be fun too, don't get me wrong. I actually think both of these series, as much as there's talk about, you know, oh, it's four Sunbelt teams and does anybody really care? I think the hockey is going to be fantastic. But that Dallas-Vegas series in particular, I think is going to be really heavy, old school, like below the dots, and a lot of north-south uh, style of hockey and we've heard from Tockett that that's what he wants you know like that that's the kind of team he's trying to build here and it, it does it did kind of get me thinking like we talk so much about the Canucks ability to move the puck themselves to kind of evade other teams for checks and that's really important and that's been an Achilles heel of this team and they've tried to address it with Fronick and Bear and with structure and all of those things but Watching Dallas in particular last night and just the amount of mistakes they forced from Seattle, it kind of got me to flip that question around. Are the Canucks going to be able to kind of consistently put the other team's demons under duress and force those types of mistakes? Do they have the pieces? And with talk it in tow now, do they have the capability to kind of develop a legitimate, reliable, effective forecheck that can be kind of a building block for them? Because to me, that's one of these things that all of these that's one of the things that all of these teams do very, very well. Well, I'm reluctant to have this conversation based on uh, the fact that the last time we did, I was like, I don't know if they have enough guys who win battles on the wall. And then we listed nine players and I was like, uh, uh, so, but yeah, I mean, first of all, when the Canucks had the Bruce, there it is run mm -hmm. with a lot of the same personnel, not exactly the same, but a lot of the same personnel, how'd they do it? For checking. There's a huge they went part for of it. Broke yep. on the four check. I mean, they were, they were in a zero blitz all yes. game long yeah. and when you look up and down you know especially if mikhaev skating's back you have mikhaev patterson you know basically everyone except besser and you know i guess your mileage might vary on kuzmenko but uh, there's a lot of guys who can be disruptive f1s uh miller can do it for sure on the wing he's actually really good at it uh, Dakota Joshua's an exceptional F1. We've talked mm -hmm. about it at length. You know, might as well, um, you know, be racing for Red Bull. And then, you know, you sort of go up and down the list. There, Beauvillier is another one. Really strong forechecker. Where I think the Canucks actually might have 
more of an issue. And I think this played too during the Bruce, there it is uh, bump era was the F3 was the guys with the know-how on like, okay, this puck might go our way. I need to get involved versus I need to drop back or this D has pinched. I need to drop back, right? Like that hockey IQ stuff has occasionally been an issue for this team in terms of covering and playing as a five-man unit. So, look, I think the Canucks actually have the pieces to be a decent forecheck. I think that's a far lower concern for me, like a lower grade concern than whether or not teams continue to have a ton of success cutting their attack off at the stem in their own end of the net. And and as many upgrades as they've made in terms of their puck moving, you know, uh, and, and I've gone over this, Bear Heronic, yep. between Bear Heronic, Hughes, Wolanin, assuming he's in the lineup next year, I think you've got enough puck moving that I'm no longer going to be expecting, or sorry, let me say this differently. I still expect that it could be a weakness for this team, but I don't think it's going to be like an incompatible with the act of winning level fatal flaw necessarily going into next season. But it still remains the part that I'd be worried about as opposed to Vancouver's forwards ability to get in on the forecheck. Uh, and of course, none of this is as big a concern for me as the overall talent level on the roster, right? And that's one thing I think we need to, especially with the Carolina structure argument and now the DeBoer structure argument, like keep in mind here, which is just that Vancouver's fundamental issue remains just not being good enough. Yep. Well, again, <laughs> you know? like I, I listed a bunch of the players on the third lines of these teams, right? And then you look at the Canucks, yeah. who are like, you know, we're talking about Neil Saman possibly being the third line center, right? And like Dakota Joshua has shown some really nice traits, but he's a far cry from William Carlson or Jamie Benn or Marty Natchez or Sam Reinhardt, who the who who, who all you know are feature on various lines of these teams. Yeah. Like, how good Lundell. is Lou Steranen? Yeah. So that's absolutely a part of it. You know, I'm always just trying to think, okay, like, what can Rick Tockett do to get the most out of this group of players? Because realistically, it's probably going to be a very similar group of players. I think the comparison to the Boudreaux bump stretch is really instructive because, as you said, the forecheck played, but it played in large part because they had Thatcher Demko back there. You know what I mean? Like, they gave up a lot, and they gave up a lot of odd man rushes that Thatcher Demko bailed them out on because of what you're talking about. Yeah, they can get in on the forecheck, but are they making the right reads? Do they know actually when to back off a little bit because it's not going their way? That's the question for me is, okay, you have maybe some of the raw ingredients to be a decent forechecking team. Can you kind of bridge the gap so that it's not you're, – you're being aggressive on the forecheck without giving up so much going the other way? Because we saw it with Thatcher Demko this year, early in the season, right? You can't always rely on him to be superhuman, to erase all of those mistakes that you're making. Like, to, to uh, piggyback on your zero blitz analogy, it's like when they – in the Boudreaux bump, they had, like, prime Darrell Rivas playing cornerback. So it's like, yeah, he doesn't need help. He doesn't need safeties <laughs> over the top. He's going to be fine. But if you don't have that – from your goalie, you got to be able to tighten it up a little bit. Without question, a especially given the workload that this team should be handing out to Thatcher Demko next season, right? Which is not 65 games. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even if he is at that level, 
And he might be because he's Thatcher Demko. Um, you still need to be playing sound enough that you're not sunk in the games that Demko's resting, which, you know, should be 25 to 30. Um, you know, any less than that, you're, you're playing with fire. We will continue this conversation later in the show. Get your texts in as well. What do you think the Canucks can learn from the final four teams in the Stanley Cup playoffs? And up next, we'll talk a little bit about that and a lot more uh, with our pal. He covers the NHL for ESPN. He is Ryan Clark. That's next. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People Show with Big Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Strantz here with you. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Keeping you at the top of your game now found together online at DLEAMC.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And we are now very pleased to be joined on the phone uh, by friend of the show. He covers uh, the NHL for ESPN. He is Ryan Clark. Ryan, thank you as always for making time. How are you? Good, good. How are you two doing this afternoon? Uh, we're doing very well. I'm a little upset that there's a, a couple days with no hockey here, but uh, I'll live. I'm, I'm excited for the conference finals to get going now that we know the matchups. Before we get into the matchups, what did you think of Dallas's Game 7 performance last night? It's exactly what the Stars needed for a few reasons. Like The first is that series had almost been predicated by who was going to be the first to score four goals, and Last night you saw them combine to score three, but what you saw more importantly from the Stars is they were able to really tap into a defensive identity that they used in the regular season because we think about that team and we think between Robertson, Hentz, Pavelski, Heiskanen, Wyatt Johnston, Max Domi that they're this offensive explosion, and they are, but when you look at their underlying metrics, they're one of the better defensive teams in the league on top of the fact that they have Jake Ottinger at the back. And what you saw last night is another reason why the Stars being in the conference final it shouldn't be a surprise to people because they were this good all season long. Uh, and just on the other side of that Game 7, Seattle loses, but I don't think anyone's looking at it as uh, too much of a disappointment considering the expectations coming into this season. What do you make of the Kraken's year, and, and what's next for them going forward? Well, in terms of the year and what it means, it's this. It, it's proof that turnarounds can happen rather quickly. It just takes a lot of different things going well for it to happen like that. But at the same time, the big takeaways are, number one, what's not going to be the expectation going forward? And number two, when you look at what these young players, like a Matty Veneers and a Ty Cartier did, and you see what's going on in their system. Of course, there was the game last night in the AHL between Coachella Valley and, and Calgary. Riker Evans scores the game winner, and that's a guy that a lot of people in the Kraken work be really highly about. And so if you were that team with what you got coming through the pipeline, what you already have there, the decisions you have to make, and the fact that you were able to see consistency from Philip Grubauer in ways that you hadn't seen it previously. The, the reality is this. If they're not in a championship window, 
they're at least maybe, let's say, on the outside of a championship window with the idea that they're not that far off from being able to compete for a Stanley Cup, again, if they can continue to build on what they did this season. Ryan, you were on the Kraken beat in year one. And then, of course, you're Seattle-based, but covering the whole league this season. From your perspective, how surprised are you by what the Kraken were able to accomplish in their second season now that it's all in the books? Somewhat, just because they had really good players that had shown elsewhere they could do it. But it also came with the context of something you'd hear from people in New York a lot, which was, it's the pandemic, there are challenges. And it's one of those things that, like, while it would be said, there wasn't really much context given as to, okay, what do you mean by the pandemic being a challenge? Because there's something everyone's going through. But this year, you've heard that context. And it's things like, for example, team building stuff, spending time together. It's been things like we've heard different players talk about, like, First year of, a, of, of, of being in a system, there's terminology that gets used that you have an idea of what the coaches are saying, but you're still trying to figure it out for yourself. Whereas if a year later, you know what that terminology means, you know what they're asking, you know what they want, and then you can just start building upon what you've already learned to take that, that next step. And so for those reasons, it's, it's not as surprising, but for the reasons why it is, is because you think about some of the players that had to have big jumps, like Vince Dunn had a big jump for them to the point where there mm-hmm. are some execs who said, look, Vince Dunn is a top two defenseman in this league. Um, we saw the jump that guys like Morgan Geeky made for this team where he was playing in a middle, if not bottom six role at times. Will Borgen is another player who made a significant jump. You see the contributions that Martin Jones made because no one really knew what to expect from Martin Jones, but yet he was able to, to, to give them a, a sense of comfort at the back when they were still trying to figure things out with Philip Grubauer injury-wise, consistency-wise, while Chris Drieger was out of the lineup. And so, look, there's definitely items to be surprised about because not everyone's going to manage it that well. But it's also one of those things that, yes, the talent had been there. It was just a matter of how it was always going to come to fruition. And plus, when you think about the people they even brought in in the offseason, like Andre Burakovsky went healthy. He's a 30-goal scorer in the league. Oliver Bjorkstrand is a player that, when he's at his peak, can get you 20 goals and really operate on all these different, again, teams, whether it's like you need him in five-on-five, power play, penalty kill, like he's capable of doing everything. And then the other thing, too, is like for all the players they brought in, the argument can be made that the two biggest, again, surprises were Justin Schultz and Ely Tolvin in on waivers because with, with Justin Schultz, he was a puck mover, but Ron Francis had said it. Like everywhere Justin Schultz has been, he's been good, but he's had someone like a Chris Letang or a John Carlson in front of him what could he do with more time? And you saw what he was able to do here in Seattle, which was give him another top four puck moving option. And it's one of the reasons why they were so dangerous. Whereas if Ely Tolvin, and it's another example of a guy that you get on waivers that you find success. And whether it was adding Ryan Donato late last season before camp and him turning into one of their best scorers, whether it was the decision in, in the Marcus Johansson trade to go get Daniel Sprong and you see him evolve now getting Tolvin in through waivers it's showing that this is a team that it can find ways to not only utilize guys, but allow them to have career seasons. Ryan, Borgen, Dunn, Donato are up, but realistically the Kraken are going to have 10-plus 
million in flexibility, even after retaining their key guys, what would be one priority, one thing you'd expect to see the Kraken aggressively pursue at the outset of their offseason? Possibly trying to strengthen their top six or top nine forward group. But that also comes with the caveat of Maddie Beniers is going into the final year of that ELC. And as we've seen for forwards and really just players like him who are that talented, you don't know what those next contracts are going to look like other than they are going to be sizable. And if you're the Kraken or any team in that position, you're keeping one eye on that with the idea of what you do now. Well, impact what you're able to do later but if you're them possibly adding to the to the top nine group maybe they look to add on defense because there's the question of what happens with Carson Soucy but then again you have Riker Evans coming through so maybe next year is the time for him goaltending is a little bit of an interesting one because you still have Drieger and Grubauer who are under contract Drieger looks like he could be ready for next season again we just talked about Philip Grubauer so maybe there's not really much to do there but if you're them maybe looking to add a little bit more uh scoring to, to what you already had just because what we saw in those final four games against the stars really reinforced that. Like you think about what happened last night, it was a team that while they tried to get scoring chances, there were times where getting to the net front was a problem, which is exactly what happened in four and five and six. They lived at the net front. It's why of the goals they scored, the average goal distance was 15 and a half feet. And even then the only reason it was that quote unquote high is because Ty Cardi had a 31 foot wrister. So the number could have been lower. So, Maybe that's the direction they go in. Talking to Ryan Clark of ESPN here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. So, you know, around this time of year, and obviously this will pick up once two teams advance to the finals and once one team wins the Stanley Cup, but we're always trying to look for what lessons can we learn, right? What are these teams doing that other teams are going to try to copy going into next year and down the road? Do you see any kind of unifying on or off ice, for that matter, lessons from these final four teams in the conference finals? There's a couple, but even then, some are harder to replicate than others. The first one is, is depth, and everyone talks about trying to have it. But when you look at these teams specifically, like everyone on Dallas's roster has at least one point in this postseason. The Golden Knights were a team that had 12 players that scored more than 10 goals in the regular season. You look at what they're doing now. Again, it's a team that can get production from everywhere. And what's even wild to think about is they've gotten goals from their defensemen, and those defensemen are not named Shea Theodore and Alex Petrangelo. So even then, that's something into itself. Carolina has been so deep that they have weathered losing Cable Teravina and Max Pacioretty and Andrei Svechnikov, and they are still in the conference finals with guys like Jack Drury um, and Seth Jarvis playing big roles along with Sebastian Alaho, along with a defense that, again, when we talk about what are the better defensive units in this league, it is that. And then you look at the Florida Panthers with the depth that they have with guys like, of course, like Berkey Hagee, you seem to Claire. When we talk about Matthew Chuck and Barkov and all the contributions they've had, Brandon Montour having one of those seasons where you're wondering why doesn't he get more buzz for, for the Norris along with what Aaron Eckblad has done. So it's depth. But then the second one that may be a little bit harder to figure out is it is the goaltending component because what you've seen with Vegas, what you've seen with Florida, and Carolina has this capability as well as you have depth to where you're using that tandem approach. And it seems like that's the thing more teams have been doing over years because you look at Dallas, who's the outlier in that. If you can get a Jake Ottinger, who is the prototype of the 6'5", 220-pound goalie, who has the length, the, the strength, the, the everything you need to be that goalie who can start 60 games a year, 
you go get it. But the reality is those players just don't exist like that in great supply. And so that's really probably two of the biggest takeaways is, A, not only how do you build that depth, but B, how do you get that tandem goaltending to where if you're Vegas and you lose Laurent Brassois after you already lost Logan Thompson, you can play Aiden Hill and he's able to win you three of the next four games. And then you set yourself up for a conference final situation where you are literally prepared for any situation imaginable as it relates to your goaltending. Yeah, the depth one is really interesting because I know a lot has been made about, you know, high-priced, top-of-the-league stars like uh, Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews bowing out in the second round. But, you know, you look at the teams that are left, like the Golden Knights are paying Jack Eichel $10 million. The the Panthers are playing paying a lot to Barkov uh, and Sergei Bobrovsky and Matthew Kachuk. It's not that they don't have high-priced players. It's just that they have been really successful in building out the rest of their team with those constraints, right? With the constraint of paying their best players a lot of money in a way that maybe Edmonton and Toronto haven't been. And I wonder if we're going to continue to see that kind of being the separating factor from, you know, still really good teams in Edmonton and Toronto versus the teams that can go uh, on deep playoff runs. It's hard to say because there is an executive I once had this conversation with who said there's going to come a point where every team that wants to win championships, those top players are going to have to understand if you really want to win, you might have to take less in order to get more players through the door. Now, granted, that's a philosophy that if you're an exec, it makes total sense. Yeah. But if you're a player who's one of the best in the league, like, what would you rather have? Like, would you rather have that money? Would you rather have that championship? Or do you think maybe both could happen where you get paid a lot of money and you get your championship? It, it's hard to say because everyone is different. But, like, what we've seen through this exercise, at least of this offseason, is how you manage money is, is everything. But also it really goes back to the conversation of, like, a, what happens with the cap going forward, and B, like when you are an executive dealing with these high-end players, like what is the realistic conversation about financially, like how to make it work? Because, again, you look at, let's say, certain teams like the Vegas Golden Knights and what they're able to do. Uh, I mean, yes, they are a team that has definitely been over the cap. They use LTIR. There's conversations about that. And while people might get angry about it, let's be honest, there's the rules. They found a way to make it work. And it's like we all keep saying, don't be mad at them. Be mad at the system that allowed them to operate in this way. But the point being is, is you have to be not only smart about your money, but you also have to be smart about finding those players who can do a lot for you on, on cheap deals. And that's something every team is, is trying to do right now. So, look, if you're the Oilers and you're the Leafs, for all the star power you have, and, and it's not to be cute about this, but for while that star power is important, the other thing that's just as important is those guys on cheap deals because you think about it, for all the things we talked about that Evan Bouchard did for the Oilers, which is a lot, you could argue his greatest value was he was still on his ELC, and it's what allowed them to be able to be in the position they were in to add as much as they could add. Ryan, at this time last year, we were talking about a weak Pacific division and a pair of teams that had missed the playoffs in Seattle and Vegas that are now the toast of the league. So things can change in a hurry, of course. But going into the offseason for all Pacific Division teams, save Vegas, how would you rank? And I love to do this. You know, you know I love to do this. Give me your tiers. What are your tiers of teams at the outset of this offseason in the Pacific going into next year? So aside from Vegas, let's say the tiers of teams that look to compete for a championship, Edmonton and Los Angeles 
would would be in that group. And yes, LA gets knocked out in the first round. But again, what we just talked about with depth, how to manage money, how to do all these different things. They just played the wrong team in the first round, and that's kind of been a prevailing thought. But you look at what the Kings have been building. They're in that conversation. The Oilers are in that conversation. That next tier down, a team that look like they're on the precipice, like they're definitely a playoff team, but they're on the precipice of possibly entering that championship window, would, would be the Kraken. Then in that next tier of teams that look like they could maybe get into the playoffs, but again, they need to do some things in the offseason. The Calgary Flames, they're that to the T. They didn't miss the playoffs by much, but it's one of those teams where even though they didn't miss it by much, there's still questions that they've got to answer. And then in that next tier down of teams that you just wonder if there's too many questions to figure out, that's exactly the Vancouver Canucks. And this is something Thomas and I talk about all the time with the Canucks. It's one of those things where when you look at that roster and you look at the talent they have, like that's a team that should be winning more games than what it has. But for one reason or the other, which I know all of you have talked about on radio in your personal lives, at home, at church, talking to your dog, whatever the case might be, uh, sometimes all at once, like these are all things that just, it's the million-dollar question of why hasn't this worked out the way it has. And then in that next tier down of it might take a while would be the Ducks and the Sharks. But even then, with the caveat of the Ducks, you think about what Adam Fantilli could be, assuming that's who they're going to sit there and take. You think about the fact that all their defensemen were the defensemen of the year, and their respective junior leagues, which is the first time an org has ever had that in the CHL system, along with what they have with Trevor Zegers and Troy Terry and, and, of course, Mason McTavish, it makes you wonder if Anaheim's not that really that far off, whereas if with the Sharks, it seems like there's going to be a couple things that need to happen before they can really get into that conversation of taking that next step. So hopefully that's a specific division arrangement that at least semi-makes sense, but if you had to, I guess, create sort of a tiered system at this point on, on May 16th at 1.16 p.m. Pacific time, maybe that's the answer. <laughs> um, what, what do you think the Canucks would have to do to get into the mix and outpoint the Kraken next season? Stability, honestly. That's the big thing because like, we talk so much about the Kraken and what went right. And it was just stability, not only within the system, but players understanding their roles and not only understanding their roles, but everybody understanding the importance of those roles. That was really one of the big things that that everyone with the Kraken sort of talked about. And with the Canucks, it would be that. But then the other thing, too, is, as we talked about with the Kraken, it's being able to find these deals or sign these players or bring up these prospects that you know are going to be able to contribute. The Oliver Bjorkstrand deal happens because they knew Columbus was in a cash-strapped situation, so they, they took advantage of it. Sprong was seen as his throne in Marcus Johansson. So you get draft capital and a player who can help you right now. Tolvanen was a waiver-wire pickup that they felt really strongly about. Ty Carday was an undrafted free agent. Of course, Matt Evaniers was, their number two, was the number two pick of the 2021 draft and their first pick in, in franchise history. So it takes those different things. And with the Canucks, it seems like – how do you find a way to figure that out? Just because, again, when you look at cap friendly and what's going on with projected cap space for next year, they're at zero. Like, they've got to find a way to clear money. They've got to find a way to start getting more prospects to come through the system and be able to be, like, these significant contributors. Because, again, just looking at it from the prism 
of, of the Pacific Division, like we, we just talked about, like let's compare their situations to some of the other teams. Like you look at the Calgary Flames, between Matthew Coronado, Dustin Wolf, there's a feeling like, okay, there might be some, some players there. With the Ducks, we just talked about that decor and Fantilli and, and why that's a thing there. With the Oilers, yes, you have Bouchard, you have you know Ryan McLeod, you have the potential of Dylan Holloway, but you might have some other players too who could be a thing. And Vincent DeHarnay and, and, of course, what we saw from Stuart Skinner this year, they're examples of that. The L.A. Kings whole movement has been built around the idea of how do you build from within, use your youth system to develop all these different things. And even with the Golden Knights, that's a lesson they had to learn early, which was how do you get these guys, and they're slowly starting to get them through with guys like Hagen, and White Cloud and Colasar, who they've all had a hand in, in developing. And so if you're the Canucks, those are the things that you need to try to do, which, again, it feels very weird to say that it's about trying to develop in-house when this is the team that its roster is built around homegrown talent, such as Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, uh, Vasily Pod-Coles into a degree, of course. Uh, Quinn Hughes is another one. And then, of course, Thatcher Demko. So it, it is happening, but you need to ha- for it to happen in, more, in greater phase and spurts, if that makes sense. Few more minutes here with uh, ESPN's Ryan Clark on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Just quickly on the the Eastern Conference Finals, you know I don't think a lot of people picked either of these teams to be at this point, and with Carolina specifically because of their injury situation going into the playoffs. What what are you watching for in this matchup between the Panthers and the Canes? Well, with the Hurricanes, the big thing is how do you keep the defensive consistency going? Just because we keep seeing all the stories and conversations about how scoring continues to rise in this league, but yet you look at the Hurricanes and they just take scoring away like it's nobody's business. So how will that work against the team that, again, with the Panthers, is for all the things that they did, being able to score and score in bunches is a big one. Whereas if you look at the Panthers, and it's a little bit of the same conversation, but more about Sergei Bobrovsky, because you think about how this postseason started. Like, People were thinking, okay, how far can this group get with Alex Lyon at the helm? They make the switch to Sergei Bobrovsky, and as we've seen, like, there have been playoff series where Sergei Bobrovsky struggled, and then there have been playoff series where we've seen Sergei Bobrovsky be one of the best players on the ice. And so if you're the Panthers, that's really one of the big questions that you're trying to make sure you can continue to answer because if Bobrovsky's at his best, what's stopping them from realistically getting to the Stanley Cup Finals? So if you're the Hurricanes and the Panthers, those would just be two of the items to follow. You know, the other thing I'm going to be watching is the matchup of two of the best centers in the NHL, two of the best Finnish players in the NHL, Sebastian Ajo and Alexander Barkov. I mean, we'll see how it plays out. I wouldn't be surprised to see them matched up a lot against each other in that series. Are you? Is that as much of a key matchup for you as it is for me? It's definitely one of them because, like, whether it's the matchups of players who are going head up against each other or players in similar positions – it's fascinating because, again, like we just finished talking about defense with the Carolina Hurricanes. You look at the Panthers and what they do on defense, again, with guys like Montour and, and, and Gudis and, and Ekblad, and it's a group that people just look at them and think, okay, is it more about distributing and facilitating? But there are things that they definitely do in that five-player structure that are important to their success. Uh, of course, you think about just the math, matchup of like Matthew Kachuk versus anyone because he's been one of the more electric players that we've watched in this postseason – but, again, it's also just an interesting conversation just about how will the coaching structure work here because, like, we've seen Rod Brindamore, like, have these teams like, each and every year. They just keep building and building and building, and you think, okay, is this the year? Whereas if Paul Maurice comes in in year one, and let's not forget, the Panthers, last year's team was supposed to be the team that people thought was going to go on the big run. They get knocked out in the second round against the buzzsaw. That's the Tampa Bay Lightning. 
yet this year, especially at the deadline, and this is the joke I've made with people, the Panthers have been playing on survival mode in COD, as in Call of Duty, since late February. Like, they've had no lives. They've had little ammo. All they've had is the proverbial knife, and yet they've got to the Eastern Conference Finals. So to see what Paul Maurice can continue to do and what's been a series of adjustments that's gotten to this point is going to be an interesting thing to watch. Hey, Ryan, always appreciate the time. Enjoy the Conference Finals and uh, when they get going here, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That is our pleasure. That is ESPN's <laughs> Ryan Clark doing a great job covering the NHL uh, nationally for ESPN. I love the idea that Paul Maurice is on his like seventh monster energy drink, just like legging this out. <laughs> uh, so good. That's fantastic. Uh, great stuff uh, from Ryan. I do want to pick up a little bit on one of the things you asked him about, right? The Pacific Division. I know you mentioned this after uh, the first round, but this has been a very good playoffs for the maligned Pacific Division. I want to talk a little bit about that going in to next season. Uh, you can get your thoughts in as well. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, final segment of the show coming up here. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd-Thomas-Drance, final segment of the show today, live from the Kintec studio, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And uh, speaking of the text message inbox, earlier in the show, Tyler texted in, who is going to be the defensive lockdown blue liner for the Canucks? Is Luke Shen coming back? And I did have to laugh uh, up at the athletic Drancer today. Two friends of the show, Harmon Dial and uh, Shana Goldman, had a piece about evaluating upcoming UFAs in the playoffs and whether they have hurt or helped their stock going into UFA uh, or held neutral. And on the list of players who have helped their stock and presumably raised their prices, probably like the three most frequently linked to or speculated about uh, coming to the Canucks, it's Vladislav Gavrikov, who of course played very, very, acquitted himself very well against some of Edmonton's top players. Ivan Barbashev, who's been excellent for the Vegas Golden Knights, and Luke Shen, who uh, did his role very, very well for the Maple Leafs. It is funny because before we can even start to talk about additions to this team, we have to see how on earth they're going to um, get the cap space to make any sort of additions. But even like the names that we've heard linked to them, driving that price up, making it more difficult for any of those to come to fruition. Yeah, and I mean, it sounds like from the reporting that I'm reading nationally and out of Southern California, uh, that there's optimism sticking around about Gavrikov in L.A. Yeah. Which actually opens up some opportunities because L.A. is going to need to move some pieces. Mm-hmm potentially along the blue line although on my buyer beware list i'd have sean walker who's a long-term favorite of mine but his mobility after returning from a significant lower body surgery this season didn't look quite right to me Uh, but obviously they're gonna add brant clark Mm -hmm. and if they keep gavrikov you know at some point 
whether it's Dursey Walker or Matt Roy, and and Roy would be the real target, I think. Um, you know, they're they're going to have to presumably cash in some chits and ideally use it to upgrade their offense. Arvidsson's the other one in LA that stands out to me as a potential cap casualty, and that is just bad bad news for a team that might look to dump high moneyed wingers, right? Just like Kaylor Yamamoto coming available, right? Like Yamamoto and Arvidsson are, up, if they're available, are a perfect storm in terms of killing your options on the Garland-Besser front. So, you know, anyway, Gavrikov wouldn't be on my buyer beware list, but Barbashev would. And, and that's despite my high regard for the player. He's been fantastic. How good was that tip? to set up the game-tying goal in game six against mm-hmm. Edmonton. Like, that was deft. Uh, but where's he excelled? The wing. Yeah, he's a really good winger. He's a really, Is that a really, surprise? He's a really, really good winger. And if you're if you're signing him to fill in and you're, like, to be a top six or middle six guy who can play that heavy style on the wing and be a good player, I think you're going to be oh, happy. Oh, sign me up. If you're signing him to be your third-line center and handle tough matchups, I think you're going to be disappointed. Me too. That's where it is with Barbashev. And- yeah, so the Barbashev's on my buyer beware list in a major way. Um, and then, you know, I, I you get down the list, but guys like Graves, you know, are going to be super pricey. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think Graves, Soucy, less so, but nonetheless, like certainly Graves and Gavrikov, I'd expect to be $5 million guys, or at least four and a half. And then, you know, Soucy... Um, that sort of class of player might be a little less expensive. And then you get to like the Dumoulin, Justin Hole mm-hmm. class of player, that tier. And I don't know. I mean, honestly, probably worth getting one of those guys or like a guy like that. Ideally, not Dumoulin. But, um, you know, it's going to be really tough. And, and the UFAD, like it gets grim really fast especially because i expect like mayfield to stay put and then you know having gone over the list of guys we've already gone over you're very quickly into talking yourself into one read off like glassing out guys like kulikov and mikola yep yeah no there's not a lot of exciting options that are going to be on the list, you know, you mentioned Brian Dumoulin, like Ian Cole is kind of in that, yeah, in that category. But give me well. Willannon. Yeah. I'll take yeah. Willannon over those guys. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like if if you're if there, are, that's depth. That's that's pure depth at that point that you're looking at, right? And you know, I mean, I think you mentioned this on the show yesterday, right? Like Dakota. And Josh- good luck getting them, by the way. Because if you can be depth for Vancouver, <laughs> or you can be depth for Vegas or Florida, keep more of your paycheck. And presumably have a shot at winning a cup. Like, what are you choosing? Come on, let's be serious. And you know, you, as I said, you mentioned it on the show yesterday. Like Dakota Joshua, Group Six UFA, so kind of an under the radar by definition UFA. Last year, who the Canucks signed, and you know, you like what you see in year one. That's probably the market, right? Like Niels Amon, different situation, but draft pick that didn't get signed and comes over from Europe. Like that's the market because of the cap constraints that the Canucks are probably going to have to play in when they're looking to add pieces this year. And I will, you know, I was I was looking at the uh, the guys who are currently in the Group Six 
uh, UFA bin right now on Cap Friendly, and it's it's so funny at this point because you're just like, okay, what are the what are the Canucks like? You know what I mean? And I'm going through the list, and there's a left winger, Mikhail Maltsev, six foot three, Russian. And I was definitely like, let's see who his agent is. But it's not Dan Milstein. <laughs> not Dan Milstein. So I don't know. I'm off the Maltz- Mikhail Maltsev to uh, Vancouver train, at least for now. But I think if you're trying to figure out, like, if you want to get your crystal ball out and see who we might be talking about on July 1st, like Group 6 UFAs and draft picks who might not get signed, those are the ones who uh, could pay dividends for you as the Canucks. I'm into Maltsev. Yeah. Good, yeah, good sure. stats in the AHL. That's what it was. I was like six foot three, decent scoring in the AHL. Russian Canucks, sign him, sign me up. Let's go to the Canucks. Sure, that's not a bad one. I like, <laughs> I like Cap Phillips. Cap Phillips is my guy right. in Group Six this time around. So there we but go. But yeah, I, I appreciate you doing your cap friendly scouting. That's yeah. great. Cap good friendly, fun. Cap friendly and hockey DB man. I know nothing else about him other than looking at his hockey DB page and that his agent is not Dan Milstein. Those are the two things I know <laughs> about Mikhail about Mikhail Maltsev. Uh, hey, well, that's good. UFA. But I, I'm planting I appreciate my, that. I'm planting my flag there. If they sign him on July 1st, you heard it here first uh, on Canucks talk on sports at 650. Um, all right. Could you call a guy named Maltsev? Like if he has malt in his name, yeah. See a throwback player. Remember double malts? Okay, that's. Do the, you like? What do you mean by double malt? Like the ice cream. Okay, because when I hear had like, the wooden spoon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because when I hear malt, I think like the malt shop in Archie. You know what I mean? I was like, oh sure. Yeah, it, yeah. How far are you throwing it back here? It's a little before my my time, Transfer. No, but there was like it. a super British Columbia nineties yeah. kid chocolate ice cream treat. Called a double malt. There you go. And I, I just figured you were my age and no, no. Now I now enjoyed I the wooden it. spoon. I just I thought you were talking about like the the you know like Archie and uh, Betty. Yeah, like the varsity jackets. Yes, that's what yeah. I thought you were talking about. For totally. A like, I mean, let's really. go solve a murder at a malt shop. Yeah, classic Riverdale stuff. Classic Riverdale stuff. Um, really, what we have to know is is Mikhail Maltsev a wall guy or not? That, that that that's if we know he's a wall guy, then we can start. You know, pre-writing the uh, the newser on Mikhail Maltsev signing with the Vancouver Canucks. I don't know of many outdoor malt shops. They they presumably all have four walls. They're all, and they're all inside. All right. So look, it's going to be fascinating to see what the Canucks do, right? But number one, and this is what's so tough is it's just like we need to see the subtraction first. That's the thing. I need like, I love as much as anyone, you know, okay, here's who's available. Here's who they should like. These are the holes on the team, right? Here's who they should add. Who's who here's who can do this role. It's just, we don't even have the parameters of what it's going to look like yet because we have no idea how much flexibility they're going to have. And even, you know, if you move, like if, if you find a taker for Connor Garland, right. And you don't even have to pay that much. And they take all of your, all of his salary off your books, which isn't going to happen. But even if that did happen, like we're talking about what, like one significant signing with that space. When you consider the RFAs and a backup goalie and all of, all of that, like it's going to be really, really hard to be active and anything beyond the absolute bargain bin for the team this summer. Well, and so how do you catch up? How do you catch up with Seattle? Yeah. I mean, for me, Seattle and LA, that's like your target teams, right? Because, I mean, sorry, and we should throw Calgary in there too, because Calgary finished what? 17 points, something like that. Less than that, 10 points. 
I can't remember. Yeah, it wouldn't but be it's... 17, but it was probably 17 like points with Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. And so another, you know, six, seven, eight points behind Calgary. I mean, that's that's who you got to catch. So Calgary, yeah, they were, they were 10, LA, 10 points behind Calgary, which, by the way, isn't a lot or sorry, is a lot, is a lot, especially given everything that went wrong for Calgary and how much better Vancouver was at winning overtime games. Right. I mean, you go to overtime against Vancouver this last season, they usually came away with the extra point. Like if you look at Vancouver's hall of regulation wins this past season, I mean, even with Tockett, and it wasn't, you know, they, they won a lot after regulation, which is a stat that doesn't tend to repeat, mm-hmm. um, you know, by, by regulation wins, only Montreal, Arizona, Chicago, San Jose, Columbus, Anaheim won fewer. Like they won materially fewer than Philadelphia. How's that even possible? Like that's embarrassing. Anyway. How do you catch those teams without the space to add a third line center and a top four defenseman? You know, you're going to have to get massively creative. And so I'm curious to see how the Canucks can approach this. Like, you know, I was looking at New Jersey, mm-hmm. right? And, and one thing I've been thinking about a little bit now that the second round is in the books is a year ago, we would have talked about Calgary and Florida as like two of the big disappointments coming out of the second round. And then they make the most unforeseeable whopper trade Mm -hmm. of like the last six years with one another. And I'm sort of curious to see like how aggressive does a team like New Jersey get right with a player like Jesper Bratt, who struggled in the playoffs, but is fabulous and is an RFA. I mean, is there a direct route? for the devils to consider, especially with the talent that they've got coming on the blue line and a guy like Kevin ball, who's 22 and played really well. Like, could you gumble gumble? Could you bundle or, or gumble or gumble it? Could you gumble this? Um, could you bundle if you're them? Jesper Bratt with ball or one of your young defensemen and go like star hunting. Like go hunting for a real superstar winger, mm. um, you from, know, to, to from add a similarly to disappointing round two team potentially, Sh- potentially, yes. sure. Yeah. Um, you got it. You got a winger in mind. Mitch Marner comes to mind. Oh my god! I mean, I, I was thinking someone with a little more size, girth. <laughs> um, I was thinking more like, I don't know. I, I didn't have a name in mind. I'm just. You know, their their version of a Matthew Kachuk type sure. trade. And if they did that, would an analytics savvy devils team and looking to reallocate cap space and stuff like, you know, is there a route to doing something like Garland and Hoaglander as they seek to replace Brett, right, for like um, a bunch of stuff like a Michael McLeod, who's an RFA mm-hmm. and would be a credible answer as a third line center option for the Canucks, like Mackenzie Blackwood, who's still young, 2.8 to them. It would be an inefficient contract for the Canucks. It would be like a high upside backup option. Right. And I mean, you know, 
Brendan Smith, 1.1 million, right? Like for them, that's a contract they might be happy to shed for the Canucks. I mean, that guy might be an upgrade over what you've got on the left side, maybe even as high in the, as the second pair. Plus, he's got some toughness, right? He's going to fight and stuff. I don't know. Just like, is that... And that's a big price to pay for for a poo-poo platter. But, I mean, it carves out cap space. It answers a bunch of questions. It, it, is that the sort of, t- you know, super flexible, multifaceted hockey deal? Yeah. Uh, with a premium price being paid that the Canucks are going to have to consider if they're going to fill all of their needs. Well, and I think, you know, and you kind of get at it here, right? One of the reasons it's hard to project what we might see is that there's not a lot of simple options, whether it's UFA or even trades, right? Where it's an obvious like, hey, you can move Brock Besser for this other one inefficient contract and it makes sense for both teams. So you start to have to get into the building the, I don't want to call it like a mega deal, but a lot of moving pieces to kind of make the value work, make the hockey sense work. And those trades are difficult to to, to get done in the NHL, right? And they're often difficult well, to foresee before they happen as well. Also, once you get into the let's solve all our problems in one big deal omnibus agreement, mm-hmm. the team look into the future as opposed to competing next year is in the driver's seat. Right, because they don't care about the hockey fit. You're trying to fill like multiple holes, yeah, with one trade, and the other team is just like value, baby. Well, it's way easier to like demolish. It's way easier to work with a sledgehammer than a scalpel. Oh, obviously, and and you're effectively trying to work with a scalpel while the other while your trade partner is happy to just you know, um, paint by numbers. Well, that's tough. We saw it. We literally saw it. And, and so that's really what I hope. And this is why I, I'm on team run it back with you, Jamie. Yeah. Is just, just do no more damage. Like don't make the sort of deal that's going to take years to unpack and reset, right? Like you're already there. You've already backed yourself into that corner by adding the Miller commitment to the OEL commitment, right? I mean, the Canucks are already at the point where with those two deals on the books, if Miller falls off at all, and I mean, like, he was not nearly as good at five on five this year as he was last year, right? Like in 2021-22 when he had the 99 points, Mm -hmm. you know, his season this last year, especially at five on five, was not good. Um, by any definition, I mean, third line rate scoring, inconsistent two-way play, the defensive gaffes on and on. If that's, if that trend line has like a downward or even a flat point, as opposed to spiking back up, you know, you're quickly getting to a point where your best case scenario is Dallas, right? Where you have to get an awful lot of things right that are very difficult to get right you know, franchise level players outside the top 10, uh, nailing, you know, a a pick in the late teens, early twenties and having that guy contribute within two seasons, you know, uh, it's really tough to replicate what Jim Nill has pulled off. And the Canucks are like almost already locked into that with just the logic of the OEL Miller deals 
and the commitment timeline on those, like through the balance of Pedersen and Hughes' core, like, sorry, prime seasons. Yeah, and that's concerning, man. Just I'm, do more. Just do no more damage. I like. Come I, on. I agree with the do more, do no more damage thing. I'm always here for front offices to get creative, right? But it it ties back into our conversation last year. Like, I think NHL teams should be way more creative and way more willing to think of outside the box things. But it comes back to our conversation yesterday of like, okay, creative to what end? If the Canucks are able to find a really creative way to create more salary cap flexibility and great and get a little bit younger and pick up some future assets, hey, that's incredible. But if it's if you're having to expand all of that effort and creativity to, you know, add a third line center that's good but not great for this year and maybe doesn't fit long term, like that concerns me a lot more. So it, to me, it's like, okay, hey, if you can find this kind of deal that we don't see on the radar and you're able to move some salary and it, it helps you uh, for the future, I'm all for that. I'm all for for getting creative, but it has to be with that goal in mind rather than, you know, again, sacrificing more uh, just for the service of this team specifically. Because, yeah, they need a third-line center, but they also just need a lot more talent. And the way you're going to get that is by keeping that future uh, that future in mind, ultimately, with the moves that you're making. A few more minutes on the show here. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Brendan G says, do you guys have any idea which teams might be interested in Tyler Myers next season? And I still see Tyler Myers as certainly most attractive and most likely to move at the trade deadline. So it really depends, like, well, which teams are find themselves in the playoff hunt at the trade deadline and want to add a right shot defenseman. Like, that's the most logical move uh, for Tyler Myers for me. I don't know how many teams are going to be looking this summer and considering the signing bonus and all of that with Tyler Myers and thinking, okay, he's the guy we're targeting to fix our problems on the blue line. Like, that's a deadline thing, and then at that point it's, well, probably a lot of teams are interested in a veteran right shot defenseman. Yeah, I mean, you have to remember, too, it's not just about who's interested in Tyler Myers. It's also who Tyler Myers will consent to be dealt to, provided that they're... Um, you know, a team that he left off his modified no trade list. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Myers deal is wildly more complicated than I think this market is prepared for. And I see no reason to expect, nor do I think it's reasonable to expect him to in any way help, given that he's a BC guy who makes his home in Kelowna and is an established family man here. Right. I mean, there's no pressure on him, nor should he have any cause to help facilitate a trade. Uh, so good luck. I mean, good luck. Uh, the Canucks have backed themselves into this corner with their own decisions and we'll see how they can escape it. But we'll give them credit when they do, when and if they do, especially if the cost is reasonable at all. But man, I think it's going to be a wildly crunchy offseason and a real test for a front office group that, you know, to me, hasn't demonstrated like even an acceptable level of sort of cap strategy in terms of how they've positioned themselves and allocated. Uh, there's that scarce resource to this point. Well, and, you know, the this, this stuff about his BC connections and the, um, the no trade clause, again, like that points to it being way easier at the deadline, right? Because 
then you're you're looking about he's an upcoming UFA anyways, and at that point it's such a shorter time to go to a new team, and it's like, hey, if I can be in the playoffs, you're at that point you're more likely to get uh, a player be able to work with you. Not saying that it's easy then all of a sudden, but it becomes much more feasible to me than it does in the summer for a player in Tyler Myers' position. Jamie, quickly, I know we're up against it, but Scott Texan, do you have any early predictions for where the Canucks finish in the Pacific next year? And now that there's only Vegas left, there's mm-hmm. only one Pacific Division team left, why don't we set down our baseline really quickly, and we can do this as like a monthly stock watch, like who's trending right. up, who's trending down in the Pacific over the course of this offseason, but, but give me your tears. So, okay, well, it's Vegas and Edmonton. And I agree then with that. It would be standalone. In I guess it would be realistically, it would be I would have LA, Seattle. I want to put Calgary there as well, although I think the coaching hire and the GM hire, which are tied together, obviously, is going to be absolutely fascinating in Calgary. So they're a bit of a wild card for me until I see what they do I'd also, above the roster. I think it's fair to put Calgary in a lower tier than those two t- teams. Also because of overall cap positioning, mm. right? Like Seattle and LA have flex to improve right. in a way that Calgary doesn't really. So I would I would put them materially in a different tier than Calgary going into this offseason. Yeah, so it would probably be, yeah. So Vegas, Edmonton, LA, Seattle, and then maybe Calgary, and then the Canucks is how I would. Calgary and, Van- and the Canucks in the same tier? Or at least like maybe Calgary in its own tier and then the Canucks in their own tier, something like that. Yeah. But right around, like right around there. That's the order roughly that it would be in. Yeah. I think I might go, I might go two at the top LA Seattle and Calgary mm. Vancouver sort of by itself. And then San Jose and Anaheim. I mean, I don't even know if they belong in the same tier. San Jose is such a sad sack. That it's really Anaheim and then San Jose. Yeah, talk about wild cards uh, going into next season. Both of those teams, who knows what they're going to do in the offseason, especially San Jose. But it's going to be something to monitor. As we said, it's been a really, really strong playoffs for the Pacific Division. We'll see how it goes over the summer. We will be back tomorrow with another edition of Canucks Talk. Have a great day. It is Sportsnet 650.